Bibles this morning, go with me to James chapter 1 and verse 4. James chapter 1 and verse 4. One, one verse this morning is going to create the, uh, the context for, uh, for what I want to dig into. And it says this in James chapter 1 and verse 4, and it says, And let steadfastness, everybody shout steadfastness, have its full effect. Everybody shout full effect. Full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Today, as we continue on in our series, Jimmy, I want to speak to you from the subject, let it steep. Let it steep. As we look at living a life of steadfastness. Will you pray with me just one more time this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. I pray this morning that we would hear your voice, that it wouldn't be my words, that it would be your words. God, would you work through me this morning to communicate this message that you have for us? I pray this morning that no matter what circumstance or situation that we're facing, that every single one of us would be able to lean in to your voice this morning, knowing that you are speaking, that you are guiding, that you are changing, that you are communicating truth to every single one of us. I pray that you would help us apply it to our lives. It help us see that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So light up our path this morning, God, as we continue to follow you, as we listen to your voice. In Jesus' mighty name, come on, and everybody shouted, amen. amen. Hey, uh, do we got any coffee lovers in the house? Coffee, coffee people? Coffee people? Okay, cool. There's a, this front row especially is, is coffee people. But uh, just one more time, all the coffee people in the house. Okay, cool. Um, that's why they're wooing um, as well. They've had four cups um, this morning. <laughs> um, I am a fan of, of coffee. I wouldn't call myself a connoisseur yet um, by any means, but I am a, a, a large fan of coffee. It is my habit. I will start my coffee in the morning before I even go to the bathroom. And so um, that, is, that, is my, that is my thing. I, lo I love coffee. I will say that as much as I love coffee and good coffee, I am slightly addicted to fake hazelnut creamer, okay? Um, and anybody else love the, the fake hazelnut creamer? So the rest of you just eat kale and all natural. Okay, cool. Um, it's fun. Judge me. Go for it. No, I'm so... <laughs> But, uh, but I, love, I love good coffee. Um, back in the day when I was in, in college, we didn't have Keurigs yet. And we chose not to have a drip coffee. I lived with an Australian. I lived with a German. I lived with a New Zealander. Um, and at that time, they loved their, they loved their coffee. There's kind of that Europe uh, flair to it. And so they have this purity towards their coffee, many of those guys do. And so I got introduced to the French press. How many of you ever had fresh French press coffee? How many of you love French press coffee? There's nothing like it. Um, I don't get to do it that often because I don't have the patience for it in the morning when I want my, like, I just want my coffee now. But every now and then, especially when I'm camping, I love, I love French press coffee. And here's the thing about French press coffee is that there's a very specific system to it. And, more, and, 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 and even more so, there's a reason to it. When you have good coffee, you need it to be brewed well, so if you, haven't, if, you, if you haven't seen the French press before, the whole, the whole reason behind it is to get the most out of your coffee. It's a pure way to, to brew it. So you, you throw a few helpings in here, depending on how dark or light that you like, like your coffee. You must start with good coffee. I don't know if this is good coffee or not, but let's pretend that it is. We can debate it later. But you, you throw the coffee in like, like so, and then... You pour the water in, boiling water, get it in there. 
My glass is getting hot. Boom. Ouch. <laughs> and then you put your plunger in. Now, you've got to let that, that sit for a little bit. And a lot of people think that your French press coffee is made powerful and, and made pure by, by the plunging process. It's actually, actually not, because how many of you know, you coffee lovers especially, if I were to just kind of put this down a little bit right now, which, good night. <laughs> got to let it, got to give it some air. So, too much coffee, yeah. I like it strong. And I were to just get it out right now. How many of you guys know that that, that portion of coffee probably wouldn't be the best. Because the French press, the whole point of it, is you got to let it do this thing called steep. You have, to let it, you have to let it steep. So after 30 seconds, that thing has not, ha, hasn't been in the steeping process to extract the oils from it and, and bring the purities out and, and, and make that coffee everything that it's supposed, supposed to be. It's been steeping for about 30 seconds. Okay, so even now after maybe a minute, and although it doesn't look very much different than it will in a few more minutes... The coffee is still not everything that it can be. Because it hasn't gone through its steeping process. The way that they say, those coffee people, the proverbial they, you have to let the coffee steep for about four minutes in a French press. And about then, the coffee has steeped long enough to become everything that it should be, that your, that your, uh, your taste buds will sing, and life will be grand, and the heavens will open, and God will shine down and say, well done, good and faithful French press coffee maker. <laughs> Just about four minutes. Go home, practice that, all right? It's the steeping process. Why is this important to us this morning? Well, because this is what James is saying. He's saying, listen, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, let steadfastness steep. Come on, turn to your neighbor this morning and say, let it steep. See, there's a big difference between 30 seconds, one minute, two minutes and even three minutes, the desired steep time for this French press is four minutes. And anything shorter, it doesn't really help yield the cup of coffee that we are looking for or wanting it to be. See, the quality of the French press is found in the time allowed for the steeping process to have its full effect. And this is what James is saying takes place in our lives when it comes to steadfastness. We have to allow it to have its full effect in our lives. Trials, as we learned last week, produce steadfastness. And the full effect of steadfastness is perfection, completeness, and lacking in nothing. Now, so we don't confuse anybody in here, there's a couple words that we need to understand for the sake of this message so that we don't have a skewed understanding of what James is trying to say. The first word we need to understand is what steadfastness is. In the Greek, the word that they use is to bear up underneath, to hold Wait, we've illustrated this around here before. To be steadfast is one who uses their shoulders, their faith shoulders, if you will, to bear up underneath the things that life throws us, the circumstances, the situation, to be able to bear weight in our lives. The second word that he uses, perfection, in the Greek is actually not the way that we think about it. James is not submitting to us that steadfastness' full effect is that you are perfect. Because how many of you would agree with me in here this morning? Show of hands. None of us will ever be perfect. None of us will ever be perfect. You will never, you will always fall short. I know. Positive, encouraging moment. 
Romans tells us that we all sin and fall short of the glory of, of God. So that's not the perfection that, that James is talking about. The Greek word used here for perfection is actually a word that highlights the idea of wholeness. Even more specifically, maturity. Okay? So when James says that you will be perfect, that the full effect of steadfastness is perfection, what he's really saying is that the full effect of steadfastness is maturity. You will become mature. Come on, return to your neighbor and say, you got to be mature. Turn to your other neighbor and say, shut up. No, just don't. Don't, <laughs> don't say that. Don't say that. It's maturity. So steadfastness produces perfection, or, or maturity is the Greek word. And then the next word that he uses is that steadfastness continued is completeness. And that is where we really get the word wholeness from. Wholeness. Now how many of you would agree with me that if you ordered a pizza from the pie pizzeria, help me Jesus. Come on now. Oh, so good. But how many of you know that if you ordered a pie from the pizzeria or the pie pizzeria and it came to your doorstep with four pieces missing, how many of you know it's about to get crazy up in your house? <laughs> and how many of you know that, that pizza guy better run? <laughs> right? Why? Because I want a whole pizza. All to myself. I want a whole pizza. Right? Our family's the meat eater pizza, so you can't, you can't scrape by. I want my whole pizza that I ordered. And this is what James is trying to communicate to us, is that God is trying to produce a wholeness in us. See, many of us, we come to Jesus and we give him a part of who we are. But I want to I help all of us understand this morning, God wants everything that you are. Everything. And you may say to yourself, well, you don't know everything. I don't need to know everything. He wants everything. He wants wholeness from you. He wants the, the complete package. So he says that steadfastness produces maturity. It produces wholeness. And then he says, and it produces a lacking of nothing. Right? And what he's communicating there to us is the idea that we will not go without that which we need. You may not have everything that you want, but God gives you everything that you need. And it's through the process of steadfastness. In other words you got to let it steep. Why? Because in the steeping process, you become, come on, coffee. I can do it. You can do it. Good night. Who ground this coffee? It's got a hernia. <laughs> Thank you. Clap for the weak pastor. Um, Look at that. The coffee becomes everything that you want it to be. You have to allow it to have its full effect. So this morning, I want to encourage us, allow steadfastness to steep in our lives. Now, Genesis 32 gives us the story of Jacob. More specifically, where Jacob finds himself wrestling with God. His life up to this point had been a journey of steadfastness, one that was wrought with mistakes, unfortunate events, and the consequence of decision. Jacob was a man like you and I. And this moment in Jacob's life that we are about to read is one that I believe illustrates for us a very profound moment that kind of gives us this, this micro look at what it means to be 
steadfast. Now, we understand that Jacob's name literally means deceiver or supplanter, heel grabber. The Bible communicates to us that Jacob, when he was born, actually came out holding on to his twin's heel, right? It was as if his life was set up to be the man behind all the time. And so he would find himself moment after moment after moment in positions of life where he had to kind of manipulate it. He had to do it his way. He had to have control over it, never really allowing God to be who God wanted to be in his life. And so he finds himself in all kinds of funky predicaments. One such is where he's getting ready or wants to marry a young lady. He meets his or her father for the first time. His name's Laban. And how many of you know meeting the the in-laws for the first time can be scary, especially when your in-laws are smarter than you are? Jacob, in this moment, finds somebody who's more manipulative, more cunning, more crafty than he is, Laban. And so the father tricks him, and what was supposed to be just a few years in service to him became double the amount of time. And so now Jacob's frustrated. He's in this place where he doesn't know how life is going to go. And finally he gets away from the father-in-law so that he can start pushing into everything that God has for him. And that brings us to Genesis chapter 32 verses 22 through 32. And we read, it says this, the same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children. That's a whole other message, okay? We'll deal with that later. It's in our next relationship series. (laughs) And crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. Jacob literally took everything that he had and he let them go before him. And Jacob was left alone. You ever felt that way before? You ever felt alone? You ever felt that way? You come to Jesus and you're working through all this stuff and everything's supposed to be good, everything's supposed to be great, everything's supposed to be grand, and you feel alone? And that's where Jacob was at. That was the position that he was in. And then the Bible says, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. In other words, he cheated. Then he said, the person wrestling with Jacob, let me go for the day has not broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. This is where Jacob realizes that he's wrestling with God. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him, and he passed Peniel limping because of his hip. This is important, okay? I want you to remember this part. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is Jacob's story of steadfastness. In kind of a microburst moment, as he's walked through everything else that he's walked through in life, it comes down to this moment, Jacob wrestling with God, and I think there's some very important truths that we can, we can extract from this story that help us understand what steadfastness looks like, and more importantly, how to do it. Something that we need to remember in order to be steadfast people in our faith. So I want to look at three important truths that you and I need to understand, three truths that we need to remember in order to be steadfast in life. Everybody shout number one. The first one is this. Remember that God has to do a work in us before he can do a work through us. Did you hear that this morning? Remember that God has to do a work in us 
all right? Before he can do a work through us. Great patriarchs of faith, all of them had to have a work done in them before a work could be done through them. Why is this necessary? Because the greatest work to ever be done through us is only the product of the deepest work done in us. To remain steadfast is to allow the work to be done in our lives all while realizing that the work is progressive in nature. We are always in the throes of God's working hand in our lives. There are no shortcuts when it comes to God doing work in us. We can't avoid what it looks like, feels like, requires or consists of. The work must be done. And my fear is that so many of us have settled for a brand-based faith rather than a faith that comes when there is a deep and powerful work done in us. The question isn't whether or not we are willing to allow God to do the work, but rather whether we desire him to do the work. And that's the difference. See, a lot of us have come to faith in Jesus, and it's simply a brand of our lives. We check, I'm a, I'm a Christian on our Facebook, or we'll say it, or throw up a verse every now and then when we're feeling down and, and kind of out. But the question is this, have we developed a faith that's kind of based in this kind of vanilla, quasi type of faith? Or have we allowed God to do a significant work in us, deep down in us, where it hurts at times, where it feels like a little bit of surgery? where there's ugly crying, and you doubt, and all the stuff starts happening, and there's confusion, and all those different things, so that God can sweep into the middle of it, show you his grace, show you his love, and say, come on, I'm with you even in the midst of this. It's a work that needs to be done in us. Here's the question. When was the last time we stopped asking God for things and started asking him to do something in us? Come on, can I be a little challenging this morning? (laughs) When was the last time that we stopped asking God for things? You know how it goes, God, can I have this, can I have this, can you please do this, can you please do this? When was the last time we stopped praying like that and we started saying, God, do a work in me. Do something in me, but guess what, it's a scary prayer. It's a scary prayer. God, I need you to do a work in me so that the work that you have, that you want to do through me, can come to fruition. Many times we desire the work that will be done through us before the work that has been done in us. Compassion, empathy, passion, faith, and even love are the product of a deep work of God in our lives. Not something that we kind of just philosophically understand. Watch a lot of Christians in this generation right now running around using the L word, love. We just love, we just love. My concern, though, is that we use this word, but it's got no depth to it because we don't understand true love. And true love is only found in Jesus. The Bible tells us that we love because what? He first loved us. Why? Because it's a work that has to be done in us. The truth of love is only found in the person of love. Love outside of that person doesn't exist in its full manner. Why? Because it hasn't steeped the way that it needs to steep. In order to understand love, we got to understand the one who authored the love. And understanding that person is only found when he does a work in us before he does something through us. We've got to allow him to work in us. So the first thing that we need to understand about being steadfast is we have to remember that God has to do a work in us before he can do a work through us. That's how we remain steadfast. Number two, ever shot number two? Second thing we need to understand is this, or remember is this. 
Remember that our brokenness is what builds us for that which is beyond us. Our brokenness is what builds us for that which is beyond us. See, this truth helps us bear the weight of our affliction. It doesn't necessarily make it easier, but it helps us bear the weight of our affliction. And so many times we try to reject our times of brokenness, don't we? We try and dismiss it and work not to experience it, but brokenness is not the enemy that we think that it is. See, none of us woke up this morning and said, man, I really want to be broken today. None of us woke up this morning and said, man, I really want to experience pain and frustration. I want every hope and dream in my life today to just be destroyed. That wasn't our prayer today, right? Because naturally inside of us, we don't like brokenness. It's messy, isn't it? Brokenness is, is so messy. But I want to suggest to us this morning that our brokenness is not the enemy that we think that it is. Brokenness is actually a greater reality in our lives than what we even understand. Brokenness is what builds us for what is beyond us. However, most of us believe that our brokenness represents that which is behind us, and that's why we try to maneuver around it and away from it. We say, if I come to Jesus, I can't be broken anymore. That represents what's behind me, the, the old self, and that's true. We put on the new self, but even in our new self, we will find moments of brokenness in our lives because it's progressive in nature. Why? Because he's working wholeness, not perfection. And going through the process of brokenness drives in us new moments where we can experience the new self once again. It's a theological term that we know well called sanctification. It's the day-in, day-out application of grace in our lives. Not perfection. The place of our brokenness is not meant to shame us, to tame us, or to hinder us, but rather is meant to change us, refine us, and ultimately point us towards what is beyond us. God will use our brokenness to build in us what is necessary to step into what is beyond us. You have to be broken. There's a saying that has become popular over the past few years, many of us may have even said it at one point or another, the struggle is real. Come on, somebody. Hashtag, the struggle is real. I want to take it a bit further today. Embrace the struggle. If the struggle's real, embrace the struggle. We talked a little bit about this last week. Embracing our brokenness positions us to experience the full weight of God's grace. You have to hear this this morning. Grace is not prevalent in our perfection Grace can only saturate in our brokenness. I want to suggest something to you that you got to see this morning. Grace, God's grace, is not attracted to perfection. Perfection actually rejects God's grace because we're saying, I can do it on my own. Brokenness is the beacon for God's grace. It's when I'm the most broken, like Paul said, that I need his grace the most. In my perfection, I don't see his grace. I don't experience his grace. But in my brokenness, in the onus of my brokenness, I actually feel saturated by his grace. I am in his grace in this moment. I don't have to be perfect. It's in my brokenness that I experience God the most. So in worship, be broken. 
In our Bible reading, be broken. In our relationships, be broken. In our churches, be broken. You know what happens when we experience the grace of God and the presence of God the most in a, in a Sunday morning like this? It's when a bunch of broken people get together and lift their hands, not in their perfection, but in their brokenness, and God says, ah, yes, finally, brokenness. I can do some stuff. Think about that. But when a church is gathered together with all of our plastic smiles and all of our niceties and looking all good and looking all fine, and we say we will worship God stoically, he doesn't show up. Why? Because we don't need him. But when a church is broken and contrite before God, I don't worship because I'm perfect. I'm worshiping because I'm broken. Oh, God's grace shows up. His presence shows up. And we have a moment like we did this morning. We don't shout and praise because we're perfect. We shout and praise because he's perfect. <laughs> Come on, is anybody having church this morning? Because I'm, I'm pumped about that. We need to understand something. That our brokenness is what builds us for that which is beyond us. And many of us never fully experienced the full weight of God's grace because we are caught up trying to prove our perfection rather than revealing our brokenness. God, did you see this? Did you see me? Did you see? He doesn't want your perfection. He wants your brokenness. Embracing our brokenness positions us to experience the full weight of God's grace. Now, in this moment, we see Jacob do something very significant, have something very significant happen to him. The Bible tells us that God, wrestling with God, he cheats, he hits him on the hip, and now he's got this injury. God had to cheat because Jacob was wrestling so hard. I know for all the dads in the house, maybe you're like me, I like wrestling with my boy, but every now and then I just got to show him who's boss. You know what I'm talking about? Because he gets a little relentless with me. He'll like keep on coming at me. Did this the other day, we're on the bed, he's wrestling with me, and he's like, and I push him off, and I'm like, stop, I'm, I'm just not in the mood right now, and, and, and he's jumping on me again, and then he's getting squirrely and flailing and, and everything like that, and then he hits me the wrong way, and I'm like, all right, dad's got to be dad, and I throw him <laughs> just a little bit further, <laughs> right? And then you see this kind of like, oh, dad's actually strong, <laughs> right? Got to let him know, and this is kind of what happens to Jacob in this moment. God, God reveals his strength. Now all of a sudden, there's an injury in Jacob. There's this brokenness that's in Jacob. And so many people are trying to live perfect lives that are void of struggle. But the mark of maturity is one who can walk through struggle, embrace it. And although they have been dealing with the struggle, they still walk with a limp. And that's what I love about Jacob is he still wrestled even though he was injured. Listen, don't be afraid of your limp. Don't be afraid of your limp. Someone once said to me, never trust someone who doesn't walk with a limp. Right? I'm not talking about the pimp limp or anything like that. <laughs> I have to clarify that. I just, I'll put that out there. That's, that's for another relationship series. <laughs> I'm talking about a limp. Never trust somebody who doesn't have 
a limp. Can I, can I say, I've been saying this to the singles all morning. If you're single in the house this morning, which we've had a, a ton of um, in, in both of these services, ladies, don't trust a man who doesn't have a limp. And that limp that is produced by being broken before the Lord. Men, don't go after the glitz and the glam of it all. Don't trust a woman who doesn't have a limp that has been developed by being broken before the Lord. See, Erica knows the reason that she trusts me the way that she does, and I know that I can say this because she would stand up here and say this, she knows that I walk with a limp. Many times, two limbs. If that's even possible. <laughs> I'd illustrate it, but then it'll get weird, so. <laughs> Listen. It's when we are crippled in our own strength that we then find that our strength is in our faith in His grace. See, we can't enter the new land that God has for us occupying the old self that we've been operating in. Jacob was on the crest of the new promised land for him, but his name, Jacob, could not be his name if he was going to step into the promised land. So he wrestles with God. He contends with God, and it's in that moment contending with God that even in his brokenness, God decides, I need to change your name so that you can walk into that which I have for you. It's in our brokenness that God brings our new name. It's in our brokenness that God touches us in a significant, deep, and profound way that we then become who we need to be in order to step in to the new land that he has for us. We've got to be broken. Listen, our new self is only found in the ash of our old self. We've got to be okay with being broken. The last one is this. Number three, we have to remember to stay. Come on, we have to remember to stay. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 4 through 6 says this, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way that the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. But it's interesting, I'm starting to see what it looks like once again, and be reminded of it once again. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. What's, what's Ecclesiastes communicating to us? Stay. In other words, the difference between a seed and harvest is time. See, we all want harvest in our lives, but many times we're unwilling to deal with the time necessary for the harvest to take place. And Ecclesiastes is telling us we don't know what that time is. A tree develops longer than a weed. A bush takes more time than a dandelion. The difference between seed and harvest is time. See, we need 
a revival of staying power. And it's amazing how much of our prayers are for change when God is asking us to stay. That's why he says, Paul writes in Galatians 6, 9, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, proper time, proper time, proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. We have to learn to stay. We gotta stay, we gotta hold on, we gotta keep on going. And I love the determination that's captured in this moment of Jacob's journey. There was no way that he was going to have come this far through this much pain just to be at the edge of the promised land and then let go. And some of us are right there. Some of us are ready to let go. We're ready to let go of God. We're ready to let go of our faith. We're ready to let go of everything that's before us. And I wanna encourage you this morning, if you don't hear anything else, stay. Stay, hold on, be like Jacob, I will not let go unless you bless me. And here's the paradox. This is the great paradigm that we need to understand. Change takes place when our place does not change. Change takes place when our place does not change. Psalm 1, 1 through 3, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on this law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. Here's the question, where do you need to stay that right now you are inclined to leave. And I'm not just talking about location. For Jacob, he could not let go in the middle of his wrestling match with God and miss out on the blessing that would ultimately come from holding on and staying with it even though it hurt. Some of us are hurting in here this morning. We have been staying and it's hurting all the more, but keep on staying because the pain may stay with you, but come on, there's a blessing at the end of it. There is a blessing at the end of the pain. There is a blessing at the end of the situation. There is a blessing. We have to stay. Now for the generation that loves risk, for the world right now and the society that says try everything, do everything, live life to the fullest, I want to give you this suggestion. Sometimes the greatest risk we will ever take is staying right where we are at. Sometimes the scariest thing that you will ever do is staying right where you're at. Stay in the midst of the wrestling match. Stay in the midst of the situation. Now I know there's a million and one situations represented. And for the sake of clarity, I want to make sure some of you are like, oh, I'm in, a, I'm in an abusive relationship. And I've got some things happening in my life that, man, th this is bad. I'm not suggesting ignorance. I'm not suggesting put yourself in a dangerous position. But what I am suggesting is that many of us have a tendency to give up on what God is doing in us just before he's about to bring it to completion. You got to stay. 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 I love Jacob. I will not let go until you bless me. It's a church this morning. Let it steep. Let steadfastness have its full effect. It's actually really good. 
which brings to mind this interesting scripture. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let it steep. Come on, you, let it steep. Moms, let it steep. Married couples, let it steep. Singles, let it steep. College students, let it steep. Students, let it steep. Come on, seeds and generations, let it steep. Let it have its full effect so that we will be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Come on, would you stand to your feet with me this morning?